Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast where we explore the great books of the Western canon. I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today is the day where we are going to discuss maybe the first book that Wesley and I have disliked or went in knowing we didn't like, and that is Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill. But before we talk about how much we hate this book, or the parts that actually might redeem it a little bit, um, just Wesley, how are you doing? Yeah, doing all right, doing all right. Since our last episode, I uh, turned 30 and defended my thesis, um, so two kind of big, big things back right. to back there. So yeah, that's so been I, keeping me pretty busy. So I owe you like a beer and a wheelchair? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm uh I'm about to turn thirty three. So mm, you know, Jesus I <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm about to achieve this year is the year I have to achieve my peak physical form. That's right. So that in the resurrection when we all are look thirty three, I will uh That's right. I will I wanna be ripped in heaven. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh I gotta work out really hard this year. Uh I realized we just don't do a ton of banter at the beginning of this. that's right we're usually like, we usually jump right in we're like we talk about this book and let's talk about this book man um, anything to delay the pain of having to discuss this is probably good absolutely i am just trying to find as much pleasure as possible in this discussion <laughs> you know i've taught this book before hmm. not all of it but chapters of it in my intro to ethics classes i eventually stopped because i have this view that teaching kids about utilitarianism turns them into monsters, which we can talk about later uh, <laughs> if we'd like. But this was my first time going through and reading the whole thing for a very, very long time. I've read the whole thing before as an undergraduate when I briefly was convinced of utilitarianism and was a monster. But uh, this was the first time where I went back and read it all, including that chapter on justice, Mm. Um, which is probably the most interesting chapter, and it, at least it was in my mind, and probably the most wrong-headed chapter. <laughs> um, but it, but anyway, we should we should talk about like the book, right? This is, or at least what it is, who it is, right? So we're reading Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill. Um, do you know anything about utilitarianism? Like, did you have any background with this book or with the author? What did you think going in? Um, I mean, I took, I've taken philosophy classes and done enough reading that it comes up. I've never read this book directly, but I'm familiar with utilitarianism as a concept um, and, and kind of its development um, through Bentham and, and Mill. Uh, I was a pr pretty familiar with um, John Stuart Mill just as a person um, prior to reading it. So definitely encountered the ideas before. Um, I will say reading it, uh, you know, when you, when you keep your expectations low, it's easier to exceed them, right? So I did find the read better than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Still not great, but better than I thought it would be. Um, so yeah. I think, that's, I think that's true for me too. I actually came away thinking that there were some really nice points, mm -hmm. that some of the uh, some of the criticisms of the uh, uh, book that I had in my mind from like my memory didn't apply, that some of them did, and then still some that I just think are totally wrong. Like that, right. where I I became no more convinced of uh of of any of this stuff, but I did at least start viewing Mill as, or at least I was reminded about the fact that Mill is much more sophisticated than yes. I had, than I'd remembered, and I think it's useful for people to know a couple of things about John Stuart Mill. 
So um, just to give a little bit of context, because I, I find especially with maybe a certain era of like British um, history, we just kind of like fuzz a lot of years together, like or even a couple of centuries together, right? There's mm-hmm. like Shakespeare happens at some point, and then like the good ones leave to become Americans. Uh <laughs> From an Anglican perspective, they were not the good ones. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure you enjoyed when John Stuart Mill used puritanical as an insult. That's right, of course. Uh, he used he used it once. I didn't know it was used as an insult then, but I guess that makes more sense. But you know, he's he's like an early 19th century philosopher, and actually, he's a lot of things: a philosopher, an economist. Uh, he was a member of Parliament, and. He was also an, like an incredibly rich guy. I believe his father was very wealthy. He was he was raised um, in London, and was essentially educated from a very very young age to read like Latin and Greek very very early. So when he's doing that, reading Greek at three, I think. Yeah, and when he started to do like those etymologies at one point of the word justice later on, mm-hmm. he, he's not looking it up. Right, I have a feeling he just knows. Uh, knows these words so he, he so he's a polyglot he apparently was reading like uh xenophon and herodotus at like eight uh he, he was getting familiar with plato uh he, he it's it just seems like he he was probably like a genuine genius when we think, think of like an early prodigy um and i think it's it's really interesting to note that John Stuart Mill eventually would uh, marry a woman named Harriet Taylor, who I, I like to bring up because Harriet Taylor, his wife, one, when they got married, he wrote, she wrote him like a lot of letters to explain what she would and wouldn't do in marriage, including giving up her rights. She was like an early women's rights advocate. And a lot of Harriet Taylor's uh, ideas actually make it into his books to the point where I think some of those books are really best thought of as co-authored mm. um, by by uh, by Harriet Taylor versus John Stuart Mill, which is you know worth noting. Um, they seem to have had at the time like a very progressive uh, marriage in the sense of at least um, she wasn't merely a piece of property that he that he came to acquire. <laughs> right, right, right. And right. he was very active in women's rights movement and the mm-hmm. workers' rights movement and. Um, even animal rights activism, he sort of mm-hmm. is is very early an early adopter for. Yeah, so he is. I I mean, I think in a lot of ways, uh, John Stuart Mill kind of won history for a, for a while, right? He, um, in some good and some bad, some bad, some bad ways. For one, utilitarianism actually became an incredibly popular view of ethics, and while Bentham is kind of the originator of it in this form that we know of it today. John Stuart Mill makes it palatable to people, and John Stuart Mill starts putting out more of a vision for the world. Bentham is obviously very, very influential, but John Stuart Mill, I think, is the one who does this. Also, his work on liberty, uh, this idea of maximizing negative freedoms, um, so that uh, and against in- intervening in like a free person's life, unless there is some overwhelming reason to, kind of became the basis. Or you might, not the basis, because you might want to point to someone like Locke or something like this, but he kind of codifies in a lot of ways what we think of as like, quote unquote, classical liberalism. It's very funny because it's not actually all that classical if you go back to like Greece, right? Right. But it's it's like through Locke, a little bit through Hume, through Adam Smith, through John Stuart Mill. Um, And so 
you know, you could also, if you didn't like utilitarianism, but you wanted to read some stuff that was maybe a little more palatable, um, I like On Liberty more than I like utilitarianism, but... Sure. Yeah. But... Interestingly, um, he also is getting a lot of these ideas from his dad as well. His dad was oh, a yeah, philosopher yeah. who was yeah. a, an early adopter of utilitarianism, put him in touch with Jeremy Bentham, who became uh, his teacher. Um, and his dad, interestingly, was a Calvinist minister at first and then became an atheist and left the ministry. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, hmm. So you definitely get the sense that John Stuart Mill's kind of um, reared from a young age to be a philosopher. Right. Yes. Like his father's like, I'm going to have a philosopher as a son. <laughs> so, so I'm going to, I'm going to put tutors in front of him. I'm going to get the right text in front of him. Um, and, and, and something that's interesting about the book when it opens, right. With general remarks and also what utilitarianism is, is that he's clearly writing in an ongoing conversation. So it's, it's an ongoing conversation about utilitarianism. Um, there have been proponents of the view and also he's seeking to defend it from common criticisms it's hard for us though because we're going to miss some of that context and i often wonder when i read something like this when you say well some critics say this but no defender of utilitarianism has ever said that right well how many times have you gotten into an argument on the internet where someone says no one's ever saying that no one's ever said that when you right. criticize some position right um it turns quickly into a kind of back and forth about people denying their own positions. So the open question for us, I guess, is how much of this is Mill's revision of utilitarianism to make it more palatable? And how much of it is Mill just defending utilitarianism? And I was always taught, at least, that Mill does make substantial leaps from Bentham, but I'm not familiar enough with Bentham for that to really be supported by me, right? I, I wouldn't be able to argue that at length. Yeah, he at least brings a lot of nuance, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So why don't we just start by saying, like, what is what is utilitarianism? Yeah, that's an it's um it's actually not an incredibly difficult concept to define. I think it's difficult to deploy, but it's easy to define, at least in 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 kind of specific terms. I mean, utilitarianism is a is an ethical philosophy that um, when we do an action, it should maximize happiness or pleasure and minimize pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And I and I would say to that, you know, what that means immediately is we are in the consequentialist uh, yes. school of th of thought. So uh, to put it in very very rough terms, it is not actually the intention that matters. It is not the moral motivation. It is not character that matters. Ultimately, it is the consequences of actions. Um, now how character and intention come into that actually does come up. Like Mill talks about this and it's not as if we can completely disregard them, but they do matter or they don't, but they, they do matter, but they don't matter as much as consequences. And the final moral evaluation will only take consequences into account. And then the second part is I, I, I really like to think of utilitarianism as basically two theses, consequentialism, and then you need to have, which consequentialism just says maximize value with your actions. And then you have to have a theory of value. What is it that's good? And for Mill, it's just pleasure. With the corollary that pain is the bad thing that you want to minimize. You could probably have a good discussion about what is 
the relationship between pleasure and pain. Is pain just like negative pleasure? Are they actually two competing forces, <laughs> right? That, uh, uh, you know, is it, is it a monistic or a dualistic theory of welfare or value? It's open. I, I don't know. Most of the time when you kind of get it from like a modern or a contemporary perspective, people would just put it in terms of maximizing utility very generally and just talk about positives and negatives. Mm. Uh, this means, of course, there are people who call themselves utilitarians now who would not believe that pleasure and pain are the only things that matter. Um, I think it's better to just call them consequentialists who have different theories of value, to be clear. But the problem is modern utilitarians, including some of these people like in effective altruism and stuff, they will call themselves utilitarians while not wanting to just maximize pleasure. They'll want to do do other things. You might have a whole list of things that are valuable, right? And in fact, there's a whole school of thought in contemporary philosophy which argues that all ethical theories are actually consequentialist theories. You can you can consequentialize them all. Mm-hmm. And it's just about different theories of value and different ways of doing the calculus. So it gets really complicated, but for Mill, it's really simple. Make people happy. Don't make don't put people into pain. Like this is this right. this is this is the whole theory. And so why is this book more than five pages? <laughs> because he's wordy. <laughs> he is he is a wordy writer. But what else, you know, does but he's interested in so much more than just getting you to understand that principle. There's common objections to utilitarianism, which we might want to talk about in a second. Um, there are applications of utilitarianism or trying to make sense of com- of things like justice. And there's even the question of how you could ever prove a theory like this. Uh, and I And the thing that really helped me when I was reading this was remembering how much John Stuart Mill and really everybody at the time was influenced by David Hume to think about that uh, it's ultimately morality is going to be about sentiment, which is a human invention. Um, And then also that we have to be able to talk about the origin of ideas as impressions of the mind. And then we can form more complex ideas out of these impressions. And then we seek to justify them, right? So the theory of origin is different than the theory of justification. Uh, But we do need to have that kind of account of how the idea could have formed in the first place. Because when you read someone like Hume, he's always talking about stuff like, well, this idea is absurd, not because I have a good argument against it, but because we could have actually never formed a, an idea, a proper idea of it. If you examine it, you'll, you'll realize there could never have been impressions that came together to form this idea. Um, so Hume can often charge his opponents of saying, you just don't, have an idea in mind you're literally thinking about nothing so causation is kind of like this for him like the mm. like strong metaphysical causation there just is no thing you just have conjunction basically you have or the but what is the necessary connection right it's nothing um so the, you know there's a there's a deep empiricist leaning to a lot of what mill is doing mm. okay but as like a, the non-philosopher in the room what struck you the most as you read this well, let's see. Gosh, there were a few things that that struck me as as interesting, some positive, some negative. I think one thing that I I was maybe surprised at, though I guess looking back I shouldn't have been, is his strong insistence on using telos to um kind of measure um the actions, right? So, in other words, it, we have to have a clearly defined end 
for what we act towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him, obviously that end is pleasure or the, or minimizing pain. And there is some, at least in the beginning section, I was thinking there's actually some interesting overlaps here. Um, I mean, you know, in, in the Christian tradition, we talk about beatitude, um, which is a kind of happiness or pleasure mm-hmm. in a sense, right? Uh, maybe different from, from how he means pleasure, but I, you know, there were some overlaps there and, and insisting on, on telos was very interesting. And, and I, he, because so when he started with that, I was kind of like, oh, wow, this actually feels a little more comfortable than I thought it would be um, from my perspective anyways. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like an Aristotelian point, like from yeah. the beginning of Nick McKean ethics of saying like, every action is aimed at something. And what, and, and, you know, Aristotle says that everything is every, every art and every inquiry is aimed at some good. And then the thing at which all things aim is the good. And there's just mm-hmm. this one final end. And, and in a way, Mill could agree with all of that. Well, yeah. He just thinks the good is not purpose or, or, um, flourishing in the sense here. He just thinks it's pleasure, right? Which is like the empirically respectable version Maybe we could. In fact, maybe it would be helpful to ask this because I I looked and I did not I did not remember a place where he clearly defines what he means by pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Well, in part, the problem is I think he realizes that it has to be a kind of complex concept because he he doesn't want to be reduced to uh, it's like pure sensation. Right. right. I think I because he's afraid that's going to get to actually some problems that like Bentham had. As far as I understand it, Bentham makes no distinction between higher and lower pleasures, for instance. Right. Right. So it's really hard for him to explain why we shouldn't just want to be pigs in the mud. Um, right. um, and so like what is pleasure is um, probably a pretty good thing. I think I are probably a good thing to ask what like I don't know if there is a clear because at one point he does obviously make the distinction between the higher pleasures and the lower pleasures. It's better to be a human than a pig, a dissatisfied human than a satisfied pig. It's better to be a dissatisfied Socrates than a satisfied fool. Mm-hmm. You know, so he goes there. So the higher pleasures clearly have a, a, a strong role. He has yeah. the whole he has a whole section where he talks about virtue and why virtue kind of is worth pursuing on its own because it is mm-hmm. a component of happiness. Yeah, and so all these things are are very interesting because because as he's saying them, I can sort of be like, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent correct. You know, I mean, the the point about being a, a you know dissatisfied Socrates rather than a satisfied fool, it's like, well, that sounds like Boethius. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's something to this. I, I was looking at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article, which is always good for these things, right? And they seem to think that actually Mill is ultimately committed to the view that pleasure is a sensation and just that there are different qualities of sensation hmm. and they're sort of the base pleasures of are of a lower quality rather than degree I mean the, the math here ends up looking weird because is it like a difference in kind? Is it just a difference in degree? Um, well, he also looks at things like yeah. intensity and duration yeah. and yeah, yeah, fecundity yeah. and all those kind of things. So like a life of the mind, you know, um, has a durability to it that, you know, getting high does not yeah 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 i mean it's it's hard to explain i think to a skeptic of utilitarianism from a utilitarian perspective like why wouldn't you if you're correct just want to 
like put on a VR headset that was incredibly convincing and just always be hot, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to just like kind of like mainline as many pleasures as possible if you could, if we had the technology to sort of pull it off. Right. And, and Mill can say, well, people who know how to read good books just know that they would never do that. Right. But, but the, the, but I, and I agree actually people who, who are acquainted with that, but when you put it in terms of pleasure, it becomes actually harder to explain. Right. And like, and what we're looking for is not just whether or not you can state the facts like that. It's whether or not your theory has an explanation for them. Also, it's interesting that his view of pleasure kind of mirrors who he was. Yes. Like he's a, he's an incredibly intelligent person who's, you know, born into this philosophical family. So of course he thinks that the, you know, the life of the mind and, and virtue is really high up and desirable. But, you know, I mean, does the person who's born in the slums of London think that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And is, you know, it's one of these great traditions in philosophy. And I honestly think it, it proves how smart we as philosophers are that we've been able to consistently prove that the best life is to be a philosopher. <laughs> we're always able to show that if you want to have a good life you need to act like us don't look at us too closely because we're all miserable misanthropes right. but, but uh, it seems like we're, we're able to consistently show people actually the best life is to be a philosopher yeah. uh, uh, um, but you know and, and, and there is so there's a point there that it's, it does seem a little convenient for Mill to say those things I actually but I do want to say he's also the point you're not making there, because I, I, I know the point you want to make there, and I think it's a good one. The point that you might be taken to make there is not like, a, oh, this guy is just like so privileged and has no idea what he's talking about or something like this. Because Mill actually is very concerned for the poor, like the whole like the whole time. He just thinks that the poor are going to end up like him. Like I think he, I think he just thinks that um, maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm misinterpreting you. Here. Yes, because right. <laughs> Yeah. No, I don't think it, it wasn't that it was just the yeah. it was just the sort of intellectuals uh, self projection uh, is often influences their work. I mean, I'm thinking about like yeah. the 1970s, the historical Jesus comes out looking like a like a white liberal college professor. Yeah, because yeah, of, yeah, because yeah. that's who's doing the reconstruction. You know? Yeah, yeah. OK, I, I and I do and I do think that's right. It's it's very easy for us as sort of intellectuals or scholars to find ourselves in, in, in the right. thing and like all and always being always be projecting there which is not a bad thing necessarily i mean and there is a sense in which i think great literature um great ideas great conversations uh, do function as a mirror yeah so it's yeah. not like and and there is something to the life of leisure i think that's mm -hmm. good um yeah yeah and so I, i'm not i'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying it's interesting that his standard looks very much like who he is and, you know, technically his whole – the rest of his thesis is like separate from – separable from that. You could mm -hmm. pull them apart, right? You could have a different view of like what constitutes the best kind of life or a very pluralistic view. I think most modern utilitarians would probably go for a much more pluralistic view. In fact, I would say when I was in a like ethics classes, it was almost treated as like a devastating objection to a theory about well-being or value if you could say that it was like too intellectualist. Mm. So it like it because if it, if it like privileged the intellectual life, and so it was almost like this this hard reaction, and I remember always thinking, but maybe the intellectual life is really good, you know. Like uh, it, the problem is we that that itself requires argument, that itself requires investigation. Just saying that it's not you know open to everyone, or just not mm -hmm. saying that well that's just what a philosopher would say. You know the the arguments have to be actually pursued. Um. 
but I, I actually want to I actually want to raise uh, one question for you about um, how you would begin doing ethics, which comes up, I think, with with Mill very acutely. Okay, so imagine that you are a Greek philosopher named Aristotle, and you are trying to figure out what it is that's like good, right? You have a methodology for this. Um, you actually look for what we call indoxa, right? Indoxa, like E-N-D-O-X-A, which are, for Aristotle, something like the received opinions of well-respected people in the community, <laughs> Um, and another way of saying this is that when you want wisdom, you go and ask wise people for the, for, for this. And so when he wants a theory of virtue, he, he gets lots of, of examples of what wise people think virtue or, or courage is, right? And then he'll, he'll kind of backfill a whole theory of courage to fit all the examples. Um, and so I think of him as actually very empirically motivated there where he's going to go and do like research into what people think is wise in his community. But Mill explicitly says that actually ethics should start by deriving ethical principles and from there assessing particular actions. And I'm curious actually how you feel about that methodological move. When you're coming up with a theory of ethics, do you start with particulars and then generalize, or do you start with the general and then try to particularize? Um, you know, it's ethics from the bottom up versus the top down, you might say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's, it's very much, I, I teach informal and formal logic to my, to high school students. And so this kind of comes up when we're studying syllogisms, because it's like, well, how do you start the sort of great syllogistic chain? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you kind of have to start with induction. Mm -hmm. in order to make a syllogism. But then once you've made the syllogism, you're starting the work of deduction. Um, so there's one there's one part of me that always kind of bristles at the at the dichotomy um, in some ways of saying, well, you know, our our, our principles are always going to be being informed by our our inductive experiences. But then we also have to have some sort of organizing principle where we can plug those experiences in. And so, I mean, I was thinking this, I was thinking about this um, actually a few hours before we started recording because, you know, I have two sons, Jude is five and Rowan is two. And they were, and Rowan was playing with knights, these little knight figures that we have. And Jude came over and grabbed some of the knights from him. And so we started a conversation about, well, what was wrong with that? And how would you feel if someone came and took your knights, you know? And so I had to kind of guide him through that. And, of course, he, you know, under well, maybe understands a little bit better now that taking something from someone without asking is not a good idea. Hopefully he does, right? Um, and so that's kind of the point of, of our, our, our jobs as, as parents slash referees. So then, you know, how do you explain to him he's wrong? Um, I mean, you know it's a little bit of a mix of both. Well, Jude, you know, isn't taking something from someone wrong, general principle, Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but how would you feel if I came and took your nights? Yeah. Well, that wouldn't make me feel very good, particular. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this this uh, never-ending process of, of the yeah. two informing each other. Um, if I had to pick one, 
I think I would err on the side of the inductive empirical approach um, simply because I do have this kind of, I mean, I'm sort of sympathetic to, I guess, more of a phenomenological account of things. And so um, have it going in with a theory, an overarching theory ahead of time, um, strikes me as being potentially dishonest. I mean, then you have to make everything kind of conform to your theory. Yeah. Um, instead of, instead of being flexible. I mean, there's a general principle you might, you might endorse, which is I will always be more confident of the particular facts that I can observe or the particular scenarios than I ever could be of the general principle. Right. Right. Um, and the nice thing about induction is that it's usually a tentative conclusion, mm -hmm, allowing revision with more data. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this, you know, yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of trend this way too, but I do kind of worry that so much of it is because just Aristotle like got baked into my brain at some point. And so it's like, well, Aristotle does this. So of course it's probably right. There are worse um, things to be baked into your brain. Yeah. 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 You know, someone asked me the other day, like, don't you have to move past Aristotle one day? Because I told people, if you read Marcus Aurelius, you can get good stuff, but you need to move past him because there's enough bad stuff in there. They're like, well, what about Aristotle? Aristotle's like your favorite philosopher. I'm like, well, there's just more gems. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. There's just more good stuff that you can, that you can hold on to. And, you know, ignore the natural slavery thing. Um, but, you know, just, but everything else. Well, and ignore the thing about women's teeth. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar <laughs> with this famous example for Aristotle? Um, I don't, not right off the top of my head. Aristotle thinks women have fewer teeth than men. And he writes this in his biology, I believe which is like an empirical work. And it's kind of astounding to me because that's one of the facts he could have just gone and counted. Like he could well, have that just assumes he knew how to talk to women, though. <laughs> good, good point. Yeah, good point. So, you know, uh, it's just one of these, one of these fun facts about um, Aristotle. There's just like two fun stories I like about Aristotle, women's teeth, and the other is that in the Nicomachean Ethics, he, without saying it explicitly, essentially says um socrates's kids were like really bad like really they really sucked because he's talking about whether or not you can judge whether someone has lived a good life until they've died and he's like well actually because how good your kids turn out is part of your well-being you have to wait till much after they've died and like for mm. socrates we can say he failed because his kids suck <laughs> right right uh so it's just one of these fun historical examples we get to learn that socrates sucked uh because of his kids which kind of makes sense because he was never home. He right, was just always right. wandering around arguing. Like King David. Yeah, exactly, right? He, he did not have great kids. He had maybe one good son. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Another uh, – okay, so maybe here, here's an idea that this is not something we would typically do. But I want to go through a couple of reasons why I could never be a utilitarian. Okay. And maybe – you and you can tell me if some of them are reasonable or unreasonable. Okay. Okay. How about I'll rate them on a scale of one to ten? Okay, cool. And ten being most reason like very, very reasonable, yes. definitive. Yes. One being absurd, something like this. Correct. Okay. Yes, yes. Argument number one goes like this. Whatever utilitarianism is, or consequentialism in general, actually, it cannot be a theory of ethics. Because ethical reasoning is often backwards looking. We look at how things were and then we decide how they ought to be in light of that fact. But utilitarianism is always forwards looking because at every moment, all we can ever ask is, 
from this moment on, how can I maximize pleasure? Hmm. So the case here is, for instance, with ethical reasoning, is actually the case of punishment. Theor Mill's theory of punishment and justice is bad. Because he thinks that basically principles of justice exist in the long run to, to maximize pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. But imagine you have like a sufficiently clever judge. And he knows that oftentimes he wants to comply with the rules of justice because he thinks it maximizes pleasure. But he knows every once in a while he can get away with like letting someone off. Uh, and it won't it won't upset people or something like this. And in fact, because the prisoner who he will let off, who maybe committed very heinous crimes, um, will just be totally forgiven and not punished at all, he'll actually be happier too, right? And if he can get away with it and no one will sanction him and he knows for some reason this guy won't go do the same thing twice, he actually is kind of morally obligated to let the let the prisoner let the prisoner go. Um because, you know, punishing him, locking him in jail is gonna decrease total total pleasure and there's no greater pleasure that uh increases it. And yet I think we get the sense that that's a bad judge. That's a judge who isn't doing his job sort of quad judge. And part of it is because he is sort of the arbiter of a moralized function of retribution, where there is a sort of retributive aspect to justice, not wholly retributive, but there is a there's a there is some part of, of retribution or desert, right? What, what what strikes us there is that the guy who gets let off for no reason doesn't get what he deserves. And so utilitarianism is in conflict with kind of our ordinary ethical concepts and, and judgments. And if we trust those more than we trust some theory that some guy made up in England, um, uh, then perhaps utilitarianism is no good. Hmm. Yes, this is so, interesting. Yeah. Okay, at a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think? Hmm. Well, so it's interesting. So I want to I delve into something when you say ethics is backwards looking. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively, not exclusively. Eth ethics wants to look at the history of how we got to an event to decide how we go forward. Sure. And utilitarianism doesn't need to care about the moral character of what came before. It just has to decide from what we know now, how do we maximize pleasure? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. This is what um, Robert knows it for those those philosophers who like the deep cuts in one of the chapters of anarchism, the state and utopia, anarchy, the state and utopia. Um, knows it calls these the difference between a historical view of justice and an in-state view of justice, where you're just like mm. looking at a time slice and you can evaluate whether or not it's good or not. Right, right. And Nozick hmm. famously thinks you have to like go all the way back to the orig origin of property <laughs> and trace it step by step. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I Yeah, I guess, I guess I'd give that probably an eight then. I mean, there is a sense in which I think... <sighs> Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's good. I think that's okay. pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Next, next argument, man. If I can get all over fives, the utilitarianism will be defeated. Um, if I can get all over, if we can average a seven, Wikipedia will delete the the the, the page for utilitarianism. But uh, okay, the second one is this: utilitarianism privileges what gives us pleasure now, and has there is no real mechanism for us to change what gives us pleasure or there's no real incentive to do it. And in fact, it could be morally wrong to do so if that decreases the number of sensations in the future. And yet virtuous self-development seems to require 
that we change what we desire. That's the that's the quick argument. Hmm. I think this I think this runs up against one of the weaknesses. I think Mill I think Mill does make an argument that responds to this, doesn't he? I mean, he talks about um drawing from human experience, which I think is helpful. Um and I think I mean, if if what you do now impacts future generations in terms of in terms of their degree of pleasure, I don't I don't necessarily see that as incompatible with his larger ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I'm going to have to probably give that one a six. Okay. This one is not, uh, none of these are fully original to me, by the way. They're just like sort of the ones that have stuck. This one is like straight from a philosophy professor I had who just, who his, this was always his arguments for anything that was based on a subjective element, like giving pleasure or desire satisfaction. Imagine a world where the Nazis win and, and then, um, they sufficiently convince everyone, including those they want to exterminate that in fact, it's a good thing to do it. And so they bring just huge amounts of pleasure to the people who get to survive because they'll think about how great it is that, um, that all of these, you know, particular ethnic groups are gone. And then the people who, who were exterminated themselves have been brainwashed into thinking that it's not bad. And but, so it, it seems like this is an obviously immoral state of affairs. And yet utilitarianism cannot distinguish between this and some other state of affairs that has the equal amount of pleasure. So it's something about the history of how we got to that pleasure. And the distribution of pleasure seems to be morally relevant to us. But utilitarianism just says some total, the totalism is the thing that matters. Yeah. I'm wondering how that, how that actually works with Mill. Because there are, I you know, so, so for example, he uses the, I think, um, you know, um, we can do one kind of, injustice but it brings about you know this great you know you know we pick one person in the village and we stone them but it means everybody else is really happy and he says you know the problem is then you're stuck in a society where you might be the one and that's not an actual pleasurable system or a system that that can drive pleasure so i'm wondering if he would i I, i'm i have a feeling he would push back on the idea that a society in which people are brainwashed into thinking that self-extermination or extermination of others is a good thing um is a good society in which to live based on the sum total of human experience Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't find that to be the strongest argument okay give it a number I think it would probably be like maybe we'll say a 3.7. 3.7. Okay. Um, okay. I have like two more. Um, one of them is no good ideas have ever come from England. <laughs> we've never, we've never found one. <laughs> and so how could utilitarianism be any different? Uh, I have to give that a one because Anglo Catholicism comes from England. I see. Okay. Well, um, all right. I almost, not that I'm biased or anything. Okay. I almost had you there. 
Um, we'll, we'll see. Okay, and then here's the last one, which I think I actually think this one's pretty good. It is probably the case that thinking like a utilitarian leads to worse outcomes overall. So even if utilitarianism is true, you might not want to train people to think like utilitarians, right? To always be doing the calculus and stuff like this, because the because that sense of you know always doing this. Now that alone is not the criticism, right? Uh, because lots of people can just say, well, look, that just means that on utilitarian grounds, we ought to train people to not think like utilitarians. It's perfectly consistent with utilitarianism. But here's the the, the principle I would want to espouse: that an ethical theory should not posit a theory of what actually makes something good, like a way of calculating what makes something good, that is wholly distinct from a kind of plan of action it would give its adherents. So for a virtue ethicist, he would say that you ought to pursue virtue, and that's good. And how are you going to do this? Well, you're going to learn what virtue is, and then you're going to go emulate it. Or for a deontologist, you're going to be given the principles to rationally deduce what is good and how do you show respect for persons and then you're motivated by that in fact that's a crucial part of Kant's ethics that motivation there is it a uh, motivation and respect for the law uh, with a big l there is is crucial to acting rightly but for utilitarianism it seems like at best the connection between thinking like a utilitarian and complying with utilitarianism is just a matter of coincidence and so it doesn't be in, and so it's, it, it sort of artificially disconnects moral reasoning from a theory of ethics where no such disconnect should exist. I think that's a good argument. I think I get that probably an eight because one of my concerns with his larger scheme is I do think there's a kind of minimization of the individual, right? You have to kind of make certain sacrifices in light of the collective good, um, which I'm not necessarily opposed to, but I could see, I mean, I, there is a kind of twisting that can occur, I think. Um, right. So, it's, you know, Oh, we're not... teaching, we're teaching so-and-so, you know, we're, we're training up a, a whole generation of students to act according to X social theory, because it will accomplish kind of Y, you know, goal from utilitarianism, mm -hmm. uh, that ends up ends up kind of reducing the students who you're teaching this to just to pawns, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah, no, I, I find that to be a much stronger argument. So a political movement that I think many of us should look at with much more suspicion than we do is the old, not what I mean by modern use of this word, but the old progressivism with like a capital P that occurred in like the U mm -hmm. the, the, the U.S., which took oh, on yeah. some dark turns, like eugenics, eugenics or yep. heavy social engineering. Like, yep. let's take poor kids from their families and teach them how to be, like, be proper and stuff like this. Right, sterilization. And I, just, I kind of suspect that a lot of that stuff is motivated by utilitarian-like reasoning. Even Certainly. if some utilitarians wouldn't endorse it. I don't think Mill himself would endorse some of it. But I know other utilitarians eventually would take that kind of reasoning and would go on to use rather disastrous social policies. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. Because L Mill is, like... In most cases, not every case, like animal rights is actually a case where probably he still hasn't fully won, um, though we treat animals much better than we did at the time, uh, at least on as individuals. Factory farming didn't exist, so actually that might be wrong. We might be swapping yeah, I was that with, say. Like, with factory <laughs> farming. but um, They didn't have chickens that couldn't stand up. Yeah. In fact, by our kind of standards today, 
Mill is kind of either like a very normal liberal, right, or in fact kind of a conservative in a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways. You know, he was a believer in like fairly strong property rights protections, um, wanting to maximize liberty and like freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, these sorts of things. Um, he just happened to think that they should be that it should be extended to everybody, which is the radical suggestion at the time, right? Um, but that you know we would look at Mill almost like antiquated. Though he kind of saw himself, I think, as 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 kind of radical, in in, in this mm. sense. Um, can I offer an argument that I think a, a reason because a lot of these I think are similar to to ones that I came up with in terms of negative things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of relegating motives and intentions. Um, the idea of the individual not being very important at all, really, in light of the grand scheme of things. That doesn't fit very well um, with some of my more humanistic impulses, I guess. But um, I think one one issue – so I don't have a, a problem with the idea that we can quantify pleasure because anything that's finite can be measured. And so you know, the degree to which you derive pleasure from a thing will always be within a finite realm, I guess, except for maybe our pleasure in God, right, which is always never-ending. But yeah. everything we encounter in the world, you know, the appreciation of a good sunset um, has a kind of finite value. Now, I'd be uncomfortable plotting that on a chart or, or you know, using variables like, like Mill seems to do, but I can buy that, that it's finite. The issue is that um, utilitarianism, for it to really be effective, assumes that you have enough knowledge of the variables in a given situation to make a confident statement one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, what should we do on Friday night as a family? Let's say you have four kids and a spouse. Okay, yeah. so there's six of you. You have to understand exactly where on the on the graph each person would would place certain activities. Uh, movies, going out to dinner, pickleball, um, roller skating. You know, I mean, each person has would rank those differently mm-hmm. with varying degrees of intensity and of pleasure, right? And so to have, I mean, even in just a small example like that, there's a ton of variables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may not even know what the person really wants. They may not even know what they really yeah. want, yeah. right? And so to actually, to actually then come out with some sort of complicated formula that says, well, we should do X because that would make the most amount of people the happiest in our family unit seems nigh impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's theoretically possible because there is a limited number of things and a limited number. But like, I mean, just the math on that is you would need some sort of very complicated algorithm, I think, to make it actually work. So then imagine you're a policymaker. Mm hmm. And there's a, a, a whole host of options you have in front of you, and you have to take into account the total amount of happiness from the population. I mean, just like my county has a you know couple billion dollar budget, you know, um, with with you know six hundred thousand people living here. I mean, how mm-hmm. in the world could you possibly do that with any sort of assurance? So, in other words, the conclusions that utilitarianism reaches will always be tentative. Um, because there cannot be a full accounting of all of the data that you have to input to actually reach a conclusion. So I do think this is a really nice point. You know, some people, when we teach it in an ethics class, we would immediately introduce the distinction between an act utilitarian and a rule utilitarian. But the problem, I think, actually continues 
where if you are a rule utilitarian, figuring out the governing rule for, like, taking your kids out on a Friday night, which turns out to be a moral question, right, right? with a definitive right and wrong answer, um, ends up being really difficult. And this is why if someone agrees with you on utilitarian grounds, you should always kind of eye them with suspicion because the facts could change, right? And they'll stop agreeing right. with you. Very hard to build an alliance. Richard Rorty famously said the biggest, one of the biggest arguments against pragmatism, despite him being a pragmatist, was that no one would ever die for something they believed pragmatically. Right, right. And, um, and so, you know, if you're in the barricades or you're you know, um, there uh, with someone and the pragmatist figures out that it's actually very impractical, you're in trouble. And similarly mm. for the utilitarian, because like what is loyalty, right? Well... Loyalty is just like a really nice convention that in the long run tends to maximize pleasure, right? But in those particular actions, who knows? This is this is very similar to Hume's knave example, where what if you had like a sufficiently clever knave um, who thinks he can like get away with always doing bad in secret, right? And Hume's basic argument is just like, well, actually no one's not smart and you'll eventually get unlucky. So you really are just better off not doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Um I actually think that's a that's a question actually for a utilitarian that comes down to a math problem, right. <laughs> and and I'm not confident the math always goes in the right way. Right. right. If the expected utility utility is high enough, then you take the then you do the action. Right. And that's and that's and that's troubling. I think in in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm thankful. I know a lot of people who kind of are utilitarians, and I'm just thankful they don't act like it. Right. Right. You know, I, I I'm 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 thankful there because. You know, he, Mill in the end ends up saying things like, well, we should just like kind of let people do what they want, blah, blah, blah. Except at the same time, he also says that if there's like medicine or something, you should steal it. So he's not in favor of property rights, but you should steal it. I mean, in that example, I actually think that's fair if there's like medicine and it's like up for grabs and people just want to charge you a amount of money and it would be life-saving for someone. It's actually probably the moral thing to take. <laughs> to, to take. I right. mean, I, I'm actually more sympathetic to that line. Than he is, Which is interesting point... because Aquinas is too, right? Should you steal bread for your family? He says, well, if you're stealing it to feed your family, it actually minimizes your culpability in, mm-hmm. in the act itself, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think he's using that. I mean, in a sense, there's consequentialists, right? You're doing it for a – you're acting towards a good. Mm-hmm. It's a question yeah, of yeah. what's the higher good or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's one thing that's really important to note. Every, every ethical theory out there thinks about consequences in some fashion. Correct. Deontologists tend to think about it in terms of like the consequences of the action. Do they actually end up producing absurdities um, and things? Um, and so they actually want to reduce it to logic. And so they're not evaluating it by it. But like as if, if you universalize, what would the consequences be? And is this actually something that's rationally possible? Um, but there is a way of talking about almost every ethical act, at least that makes some reference to um, to consequences. Virtue theorists have to think about consequences because no one who is virtuous ignores consequences. Right. You think about your actions. Right. Um, what is That's ex- the whole point of prudence, right? The, the yeah, yeah. Virtue of prudence, <laughs> yeah. The, the means to the end. In fact, this is why even if you know there is someone in the building who is dying in the fire, if you have like a very, very high reason to think, actually for Aristotle, it might even just be a good reason to think, See, we could debate like the level of this that you wouldn't be able to survive getting them out, and thus both of you would die. It's wrong to go in for Aristotle. It's ca- it's actually right. recklessness, uh, and that's a failure of prudence. Um, um, you might have just noticed that I might be one of those people who thinks prudence is the virtue in Aristotle. 
So all, all, all virtues are unified in prudence. But anyway, the point is every theory thinks about the action or the consequences of your, of your actions. And so you can't let the utilitarian think this is just, oh, I'm just thinking about consequences. Don't you all think about consequences? Just agree with me, right? It's a bit of sleight of hand they can easily pull. Everyone should be thinking about consequences. But the question is, do we only think about consequences, consequences, right? Because like for the utilitarian, let, let, let me rant for a few seconds about how radical this is. There are no such thing as rights for a utilitarian. Rights are um, in the sense of being inalienable, right? There are no inalienable rights uh, for a utilitarian. So if you think there's even one inalienable right, doesn't matter which one it is. If you think there's at least one, you're not a utilitarian. Utilitarians do not think that there are virtues that must be universally and consistently pursued because it really is going to come down to the pleasure they produce in a particular society. If what gives us pleasure changes, the virtues that we ought to pursue, the virtues become virtues become vices, basically. Um, so, uh, you know, if people just loved cowards, then, <laughs> then suddenly uh, cowardice becomes the new, the, the new, uh, new virtue. Even, I would say, legal arrangements that utilitarians might initially endorse are always up for grabs if the calculus changes, right? So they can't even be sort of political allies. So you, you, if you hold any of those three things that you want, like stable political agreements, if you think there are rights, if you think there are virtues, utilitarianism is actually a hard thing to, to fully buy into. That said, there was a point in time in history where they were the only ones talking about like women's rights. And that's interesting, right? right? You know, so we should, we should, you know, you got to give them where it's due. Like, um, I, I like love a lot of like classical thought in a lot of ways. And yet, you know, I, I want to be very clear, you know, women aren't property. Women are people. <laughs> and utilitarians were some early people saying, hey, by the way, women aren't property. Uh, and right. that's, you know, you got to give it to them. But still, doesn't mean you had to buy every, everything they said. Right. Right. No, I, yeah, I largely agree. I think, um, I think, well, and ultimately I think with Mill, there's a kind of metaphysical deficit, um, from which some of these problems flow, you know, I mean, I think for him, from what I can tell, he's fairly agnostic. I mean, he does claim like Jesus at times, you know, Jesus was a good utilitarian. <laughs> then there's that's... a sense in which, right, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, yeah, there. I guess there's a sort of, you know, um, there's a sort of utility principle there in some some way. But, um, you know, pick up your cross and follow me is <laughs> not exactly the most utilitarian. I mean, he does make some room for ascetics and martyrs and um, heroes who, who mm -hmm. sacrifice themselves, but it's... Uh, you know, um, in other words, I think that if you have some sort of stable notion of the good, mm -hmm. some of this can be mitigated. The problem is I don't think that he does. And yeah, and by yeah. definition, most modern utilitarians don't. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the if the good is the beatific vision, if the good is attaining a certain virtue, you know, then I could see utilitarianism as a as a at least in a modified way, a sort of potential avenue, you know, mm -hmm. to achieve some of those goals. But in in its kind of attempt to be a totalizing system, the good is always being revised as to whatever yeah. pleasure is. And, and it's just kind of this independent concept that we collectively, you know, vote on. Yeah, um, like the good, the good isn't a matter for term. democracy, right? Yeah. Uh, there's like exactly. there's a great right. there's a great line in the what utilitarians in a chapter 
after the Jesus of Nazareth line, which I did think was funny, but where he says, <laughs> where he, he mentions that we could use, uh, use the power mostly talking about, um, education and social arrangements to establish in the mind of every individual, an indissoluble association between his own happiness and the good of his uh, good of the whole. Um, especially between his own happiness and the practice of such modes of conduct, negative and positive as regard for the universal happiness prescribes. So what he's saying there is actually, there's something in the vicinity there that I totally buy. Right. 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 Which is that like, I, you know, we would put it in more theological terms probably, but I would say something like my good is tied up with the good of my brother. Right. Like, Absolutely. Uh, um, and so I, I cannot truly be happy. Even if I feel content, right? That's actually a problem of my character if I do. But even if I feel good, I cannot truly be happy if my brother is suffering. So there, 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 so, so something there. And brother understood is actually a very, very broad term, right? It's a very, 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 very broad term in Christian theology. Um, same with neighbor, right? Right. Uh, and, and I did. So, I did appreciate the point of interconnectedness. And so um, to say, yeah, yeah, and I and I love that point. I think that's so good. Uh, and you know, while I do think some protection for certain rights is very, very important, like politically speaking, just as a matter of being pragmatic and stuff like this, there is a, a trend of people being like, "Well, my rights, my rights," right? And, and it's like an excuse to be a jerk to everybody. Right. And there's like that sense of I want a strong protection for my rights, but I don't have a corresponding sense of connectedness to like all all of you, right? It's a kind of individualism there, mm-hmm. right? Which um, which I find very you know find very troubling the the former archbishop of canterbury rowan williams has a good lecture it was one of the john paul ii lectures that he gave um on rights rhetoric and mm-hmm. um and he kind of identifies there's a sort of toxic use of of the term rights mm-hmm. um but that it can still be helpful uh and and what he's pushing back against is like some of the more i guess far-right christian um pushback on rights rhetoric at all, right? Like maybe yeah. coming from the integralist Catholics uh, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe Christian nationalists, you know, Protestants. Um, because because people will use their rights language to prevent them from embracing the truths taught by those particular, you know, religious examples. And so William says, well, it's not that we should, you know, there are real problems in rights language, right? I mean, we see that culturally in a number of things. That kind of uh, indiv- individualism that can be quite vulgar, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we should d- go as far as some of the like the integralists do in trying to dismiss rights language. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, our rights language should be used for the good of the other. Yeah. So rights mm-hmm. language should be used to insist on the humanity of of you know people with various mental disabilities in you know countries that that do selective abortion to erase them. You know mm-hmm. things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is what he kind of chooses, and and I think that's a healthy approach to. Um, to using the rights language. But again, there is a kind of good that things are being ordered to that I just don't think Mill has the tools to actually uh, yeah, defend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the examples I would like to use probably is I used to try to convince my ethics students when I was teaching undergrads that freedom of conscience was like a really important thing that people being able to opt out of things that more, felt they were morally compromised by was mm. um was an important thing that most basically we've just like given up on like uh <laughs> completely um and i found actually something that was actually helpful is i always used to start with like well how would you feel if you were being forced to do something like this how would you feel right and i found that they could always kind of wiggle out of it but if you really lean into like um yeah 
Okay, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of utilitarianism. I would say probably three stars for me out of five. Yeah. Out of five. Yeah, on yeah. Goodreads, I literally gave it a three out of, out of five stars. I, you, you know, my, my view of, of many of these classics is that they can never be all bad. Um, uh, some of them are, maybe, but most of them aren't. And there's at least interesting stuff um, here. And so I am glad that we picked it, even though, you know, we've never done any arguments about, like, here are ten arguments why Flannery O'Connor sucks. Rate them out of ten. Right. Right? Like, we've, right. we've, never, done, we've never done that. Um, so why don't we move on to EndNotes, where we recommend yeah. another piece of media that we should think you should read in conjunction with uh, Utilitarianism by J.S. Mill. I'm going to go with a movie um, instead of a, a book or, or article. And I'm going to say The Dark Knight, I think, is uh, is a really good utilitarian exercise, right? Batman can choose who to save. Um, and that's pretty much all I'll say about that, right? He makes his choice based on utilitarian calculus. Uh, whether that's right or not is interesting, um, you know, um, but I think it's I think it's at least interesting to see these played out in contexts that are maybe more realistic than the trolley problem or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so yeah, I think the Dark Knight. When I thought utilitarian like dilemmas, that was one that really came up was the Dark Knight. So. Nice. So two things I would recommend. One is a philosophy essay by a philosopher named Peter Railton, and that essay is called Alienation, Consequentialism, and the Demands of Morality. If you have a JSTOR account, I believe you can use one of your free reads to read it, by the way. Um, but we'll post a link there. I believe that was uh, in Philosophy and Public Affairs, which is a very good ethics journal. And in particular, Railton is interested in this idea that sometimes do certain ethical theories actually alienate you from other people, where you start viewing them as just like the things in which you morally reason rather than viewing them as people, right? And as friends and as loved ones and stuff like this. And is this a particular problem for consequentialism? And he goes into a really interesting idea I very rarely see an analytic philosopher start by talking about the utilitarian calculus and then say, like, what we really need to recognize is that individuals don't exist and that we're all like this network of beings. <laughs> and, you know, it's a it's a it's a very interesting uh, uh, essay and I highly recommend it. But I was actually going to uh, I was also going to suggest a, a work of fiction. And that was, I was going to recommend Ender's Game because Ender's Game kind of finally shows you at the end sort of famously Ender does not get to make the calculus himself. But he then has to kind of live with the consequences and ask, you know, did the good outweigh the bad? And it becomes a big, mm. becomes a, a a big part of it. And it's a it's a fairly light read, despite being one of these thick mass mass market paperbacks. You know, it's um you could read it maybe as fast as you watch The Dark Knight if you if you. No, I take that back. There's no way I couldn't I couldn't read the Ender's Game in three. Is it Dark Knight like three hours? Something like that. It's pretty long. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you could. If anyone can read Ender's Game in three hours, please let us know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is all. Oh, we have some housekeeping. We have some announcements to make, don't we? Yes. So... Yes, we do. Yes. Should we reveal who our guest will be, or should we leave that as a surprise? No. Let's let's reveal. Let's reveal. Okay. So our so this is the May episode. Our June episode will be Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a wonderful professor of literature has written a number of books has um has edited some um editions of classics uh that are really helpful we'll have more on that um in the episode that we have with her but we'll be we'll be discussing robinson crusoe with her that will be our june book 
um, in July, uh, we'll be discussing the Brothers Karmasov, which is what won our Reader's Choice poll um, in our most recent newsletter. So uh, congratulations to all of you who uh, voted to, uh, to torture us with that 700-page uh, novel. Um, I'm just I'm looking for it's not really torture. Um, your our pain will produce hopefully your pleasure. Um, and hopefully your pleasure will outweigh the pain of us reading those that long of a book. But and ultimately, it's probably for a higher good that we read the, that book anyways, because um, it is important. Yeah. So that will I be mean, our July book. As, as a convert to orthodoxy, you don't get to have a conversation you know, every, once a week, someone says, you've read Brothers Karamazov, right? You know, like, a, uh, it's like the book. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about all of those. We had such great picks um, for all of our viewer picks, and yet the voting was pretty lopsided for brother for Brothers K. Like, it happened pretty quickly. If I remember, maybe Hamlet came in second, but it was a very distant second. I'm talking like 80%, 60, 70% maybe for Brothers K. I think it was like between that. 60 and 70, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so people... And then people, the other three were, yeah. Um, but anyway, thank you all for your suggestions. I'm glad we get to read yeah. these together. And I think, yeah, it's just going to be a really good time. And we're we're ending the... We're nearing the end of season one. That's which right. is going to be uh, very exciting to conclude. So thank you all for joining us. And we will see you next week to talk about Robinson... Or next month to talk about Robinson Crusoe.